Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Our sermon this morning is taken from Numbers chapter 13 and actually chapter 14. We're calling it Lessons from the Twelve Spies. So while you're turning there, we're going to be reading from those chapters extensively. So I'd really like, if you could, for everybody to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. We have a really good crowd this morning. It's good to see everybody here. We have some visitors with us, and we want you to know that we're very, very glad you're here and you've chosen to be with us this morning. You're probably expecting to see somebody much taller than me this morning. And uh, he is, as mentioned by Stephen, he is in Florida at a lectureship and visiting family. And so Dane and I will do the very best we can to fill the pulpit in his absence and to provide something edifying to you to listen to this morning from God's Word. So let's begin reading in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of your fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So the Lord speaks to Moses here and says, Pick twelve men, one from each tribe, and have them go into the land that I have given them. And make sure that they are leaders from each of the tribe. So the Lord is really recounting here what had already been given to Abraham and Abraham's descendants some 400 years ago. And that being the land promise that the Lord would give to the Israelites, the chosen nation, a special land, the land of Canaan. So Moses does that. And let's skip now down to verse 17 of chapter 13. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell there were strong or weak, few or many, and whether the land may dwell in it is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So instructions are given here by Moses to go out, take a thorough look at this land, the land that the Lord has given to you, and check it out and come back with a report and also bring some physical evidence with you of what you've seen. And the spies did exactly that. And they come back, and we see their report beginning in verse 25 of Numbers chapter 13. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So they come back and provide a report that this is a wonderful land. It's bountiful. And here's some fruit. In fact, they brought back grapes 
on a cluster between a pole between two of the men, and they brought back pomegranates and figs as well. But there is a problem. This land is inhabited by strong people, and there are giants, and the cities are fortified. So what happens next is really the context of our lesson this morning. What happens next is the beginning of a conflict between two of those 12 men and the remaining 10. So we're going to have the minority opposed to the majority here in just a minute. And let's read now, beginning in verse 30. Then Caleb, as one of the 12, quietened the men before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men, that's the other ten men, who had gone up with him said, We are not able to, grow, to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they'd spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature, there we saw giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Oh boy. So we have Caleb, one of the two, along with Joshua, we'll see in a minute, say, yes, we acknowledge this is a bountiful land, and oh yes, there are strong inhabitants there, but we should go up and take this land. On the other hand, the other men say, we agree that it's bountiful, but we can't do it. We are but grasshoppers in the sight of the inhabitants of this land. So this is an interesting contrast. We have on one side, in the face of the exact same situation, two men say we can do it. In fact, let's go now. And the other ten are saying, whoa, we can't do this. It's not possible for us to proceed. What accounts for such a sharp difference? What could, what could create such a sharp contrast amongst these 12 men? Well, could it be that some of them were not aware that God had long ago foretold that they would be given that land? Is that possible? Perhaps they thought we're not entitled to this land. Well, I don't really believe that's the case, brethren, because of the promises given to Abraham and his descendants centuries before and repeated in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And we don't, we don't believe that to be a valid reason for this dichotomy of view. Well, could it be that some of these men were just weak? That, you know, maybe they were just not up for the task of spying out the land and bringing back a report that would be sound and objective. Well, it was specifically stated by God that they should pick leaders from each of the tribes. So these men had to have been man, men of renown, of sound judgment, and trustworthy. So that doesn't seem to be a likely reason for this dichotomy. Could it be that some of the men went one way and others went another way, and those who went the other way didn't see the bountiful 
uh, produce of the land. And could it be that maybe some, our two, Caleb and Joshua, actually didn't witness those giants? Well, that doesn't seem to be really a likely outcome either because there's no evidence to indicate that they didn't all go together and didn't all together spy out the land. It seems that they all witnessed the same thing. So what we have is two vastly different reports about the same land, the same cities, and the same people. God had been planning this great event for 400 years, and now it's time to go in and to take possession of the land and conquer it. And the majority have put this plan on hold. They've soured the plan of God. We can continue on in Numbers chapter 14 and see what happens next. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 1. And so the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. The people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Canaan, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has God brought us in this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it be not better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of Israel. So now we have such great despair among the people that they are questioning their leadership, Moses and Aaron. And in effect, rebelling against them, they're looking to appoint someone else to take them back to where they came, the land of Egypt, where they were enslaved for centuries and centuries. Sad state of affairs. But brethren, our two heroes, Joshua and Caleb, are not done yet. They still have some fight left, the, left in them, and they continue in verse 6 of chapter 14. Joshua now, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among them who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So we know, though, that the majority of the people stood with the majority of the spies, and they did not go up into the land. And the Lord was displeased by their, their actions, and they were banished to 40 years to wander in the wilderness. And the end result of all of this is that over 2 million of the Israelites died in the wilderness as they wandered. Only Joshua and Caleb and those who were younger were able to go into the land of Canaan. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this precise situation in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16 and 19, where he says, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt were led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would, enter, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. It was because of their unbelief of the ten spies and those who believed those ten spies that the children of Israel were not able to enter into the promised land, a land that was destined to be theirs. Brethren, have we seen this attitude of pessimism or doubt or fear and uncertainty in the Lord's church? Have we witnessed witness times in which from a physical ailment or a situation perhaps in our families where things don't seem to be bright at all? The future seems to be dim. And because of fear or doubt or uncertainty, pessimism sets in and we are immobilized to move forward. We're not able to progress. Let's go back to the story of the 12 spies. So on one side we have the minority report of only two of the 12 spies. On the other side, we have the majority. We have those men who gave a bad report. The two men, the minority, understood their mission. They understood and believed in the power of God. They believed that a great victory could be had, and it could be had now, not at a later time. All spies went on the same trip. All of them witnessed the same events the same circumstances, but only two had hope and optimism for the future. Why is this? Why is it that only two would have such optimism? It's because these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, they believed in God. They believed in the fulfillment of his promises. And based upon their belief, they acknowledged, they acknowledged that there were giants there, but they believed they could be overcome. So, brethren, have we seen this attitude in the Lord's church, this attitude of optimism and the, apt, the attitude that the future will be bright despite dire circumstances? We've actually seen this here at West Main in times past. We've seen those who have endured difficult and challenging times, and they've done so with hope and with faith. We've seen those who have had setbacks and disappointments in their personal life, perhaps physical ailments, that would slow them down or, or make it impossible for them to progress. But yet they have continued on. They've continued to trust in the Lord and proceed forward, relying upon his promises. There are many here who embrace the exhortations and the guidance of the eldership of this church. Even though there may be some doubt about its success, and most of the folks here are satisfied, when satisfied that God's word has been honored, they will gladly make efforts to work together for unity and growth for this body. A dear friend of mine who is a member here reminded me of the words of Paul, uh, who speaks of this attitude that we should have. And this scripture is found in 2 Timothy verse one, chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And in your version, it may be of sound mind. We could preach a whole sermon on this passage alone. It's so powerful in its meaning. Paul is exhorting the younger preacher here, Timothy, to not be fearful or to act like a coward, especially in times of adversity. He's telling Timothy not to turn and run when things don't look good, when the trials seem to be insurmountable. And how would he face those trials? Well, the second point is he would take on a spirit of power that would be based in love and a sound mind. 
Well, what does this mean? It means that we'll take on our challenges with the power and the confidence to encounter and overcome our foes and our fears. The power to bear up under trials. The power to, to be triumphant in our persecutions. And this power is based in our faith and our trust in God. Further, we'll exhibit this power with love for God and for our brother man, our, our, our brethren. And this love in this passage is agape love, the highest form of love, selfless love. And finally, our minds will be sound. That means our minds will be well-balanced and under the right influences and be able to see things as they really are. Our perception will be clear. What a powerful exhortation we have in just a few short words from this passage. Brethren, if we were to sit down with a church directory from West Maine from, say, five years ago, and we flip through that church directory from five years ago, we would find that there are a number of individuals who were here at that time are no longer here today. Some have moved away. Some have passed on to their reward. In fact, a great number of our older members who were a big part of this congregation have, have died and passed on. Others are no longer, not longer able to be with us because of their health. And they would like nothing better than to be here with us this morning. Others have chosen to worship at congregations elsewhere in the area. And there are also others who have fallen away from the truth. What I'd like to look at for the next time that we have this morning is what are some reasons that may have afforded others to have lost their confidence and to fallen away from the truth. And I didn't realize that so many from College Station would be here this morning. A portion of this sermon actually came from a sermon that I heard recently from Tony Mock, who was there for a gospel meeting. So you've, you'll probably have heard a portion of this sermon. The first reason is, is that at times God seems so far away. Members experience the loss of a loved one or physical or emotional pain or disappointment in themselves or someone else. Perhaps that disappointment is with the elders or the preacher of the local church. And God during these times seems just so far away. And if we're honest with ourselves, brethren, I think we'll realize that we have all felt this way at one point or another in our lives. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, what to do in these difficult times when God seems so far away says here, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Paul tells us that how we should draw near to the Lord in this next passage in Philippians chapter four, verses five through seven. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when, the, when God seems so far away, we must draw near to him in those times. Draw near to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in our hearts. And when God seems far away, we need to draw near to our brothers and sisters who can help who can help us and support us and lead us during those times. Another reason is, for some 
having lost their confidence, is they find the local church is really not perfect. It's not utopia. And the local church is indeed not perfect because it's comprised of imperfect people. But we know that God's plan and his design is divine. It is perfect. And the head of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Others may be disappointed because the local church is not meeting their needs. It may not be progressive enough. It may not provide social fulfillment or welfare or education or any number of reasons that the local church may disappoint. Brethren, we know that the local church's activities are authorized to work such as edification or support of the saints and limited benevolence and evangelism or teaching the lost. However, we do have a responsibility for one another. We are responsible to be members one of another. And Paul reminds us of this responsibility in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 26-28. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are, God, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Paul goes on and writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, For we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Then he goes on in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, And through love, through love serve one another. So we are one body in Christ comprised of many members, and all that we do should be for the benefit of the entire body, each and every member. We're to be one in Christ, and while many we are here to serve one another. And we, if we do that, the, Lord, the Lord's church will be less imperfect, even though we're made up of imperfect people. Brethren, we're really blessed here at West Main that we're growing. So we've grown substantially over the last year or so. What that does, though, it creates an obligation and a need for us to be watchful and ever diligent in our care for one another. Because we are now larger, we must draw closer to one another. We must draw closer so that we can better know one another, so we can know how to serve one another. One of the goals that the elders outlined last month was that we should strive to grow in our hospitality toward one another. Well, why would we do that? We would do that so we could know one another, to know how we can better serve one another. Let's all make, make a conscious effort and dedicated effort to be more hospitable as we learn to become closer members one of another. Brethren, if you don't know who among us is in need, our member care effort is an excellent way to find out how we can be of assistance to others. You'll find it's a well-organized and it's a very efficient effort. But this is a group effort and it does in no way preclude the efforts of individuals here in your own work and looking after one another. So if someone's hurting or someone's absent, let's do our part to check in on them and to attend to them and to care for them as a part of an individual or a group effort. Another reason why some may have lost their confidence is that sin is so alluring, it's so tempting. The world we live in is one that's filled with temptation and that temptation is so alluring. If we see something we like, we want it, we believe we deserve it, we are tempted to go after it. This leads us into worldliness and into sin, 
And we know as Christians that we must live in this world, but not be of the world. That's what's recorded here in 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Lord is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So let's remember that the world and its lust are temporal. They're passing away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever with him. Another reason is that the journey just seems so long, just too long. And that might be why some have lost their confidence. We just give up hope. There's too many roadblocks. We just get sick and tired. And we don't want to have, take the time that's necessary to serve our Lord any longer. In our world of distractions and pressure and stress and care and worry, this is certainly to happen to even the strongest of our body. The writer of Hebrews again reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12 that we must remain focused and fix our eyes on the goal. Hebrews 12, 1-2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race which is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brethren, the journey is long, but let us run this race by putting away anything that would distract us or slow us down, by fixing our eyes on Jesus and remembering why he suffered and died for us. We must not ever give up. We must have the endurance to complete this race. Finally, another reason is that heaven just doesn't seem attainable. Perhaps our past sins or our continual falling back into sin makes it seem that our sins are so unforgivable are so large, and the struggles we have to serve God faithfully seem so overpowering. And perhaps the temptations that continue to overcome us make heaven look impossible or unattainable. Brethren, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of you may remember a man who worshipped with us here several years ago, and this is a man that at age 19 uh, was not a member of the church at the time, and he was addicted to drugs, and he and his buddies decided that they needed to feed that habit, and so they attempted to rob a convenience store. In the process of the robbery, everything went wrong, and the convenience store man pulled a gun. Uh, he was subsequently shot. The convenience store attendant was killed. Uh, uh, the boys were apprehended. They were quickly brought to trial and were sentenced to life imprisonment in state penitentiary. So this particular man comes to us after being released on good behavior and had been tried and sentenced for murder. This man learned the gospel in prison. He repented of his sins. He confessed in the name of, his, of our Savior and he was baptized for the remission of his sins. And he 
ultimately married a Christian woman. As far as I know, this man is still faithful to the Lord today. Apostle Paul reminds us that even the vilest, even the most dark sinner can be washed, can be sanctified, can be justified before God, just like the man that I described to you. Let's look at the sinners who are made whole in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or you do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, or drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers, and we could add murderers in there, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. The most wonderful thing about salvation and the promise is that it is ongoing, it's ever-present, and it's available to anyone, even the vilest of most sinners. Anyone who will repent and confess and be, ba- and be baptized, washed in baptism. Many, many examples in the book of Acts for those who did precisely that. We could spend a lot of time looking at those examples, but we'll look at just one in Acts 16, verse 31 through 33. In this story, Paul and Silas are imprisoned, and the Lord miraculously releases and opens the prison doors. The jailer who's on duty was fearful for his life, and he was about to kill himself for having allowed the prisoners to escape. But Paul stopped him, and he spoke kindly to him, And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replied and said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Brethren, all have sinned and all need to come to repentance before God. And our Lord is patiently waiting for us to come to repentance. As we see in Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord's not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, brethren, let's remain focused on the goal that's set before us. Let's run the race with endurance. Let us not lose confidence in the outcome. Imagine for a moment what would have happened if all of, the, all of the spies would have given a good report. The Israelites would have entered into the land of Canaan 40 years sooner, and some 2 million lives would have been spared at least that time. Let's learn from the 12 spies. Let's not make the mistake that they did. Let's look at one more passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 to 39. The writer of Hebrews here exhorts us to continue on. And to be faithful. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And now he quotes Habakkuk. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him that we who are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of their soul. So what's the meaning of this passage? Let's look at this briefly. One, remain confident in the great reward that's reserved in heaven for us. 
Peter speaks of this as well in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Brethren, do not forget the promises that have been given to us. Keep our confidence high. Secondly, this passage tells us to endure until the end to receive our reward. Timothy says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. We must endure to the end despite the trials, physical or emotional or spiritual trials that we face. Finally, we must have faith that God will protect us and preserve our souls. While we're in the midst of doubts and fears and trials, we're reminded of the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-9, where he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you're just distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in faith, I mean, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Brethren, the ultimate goal that we have is heaven. Our mission should be to attain that. And Peter tells us here that the outcome depends on our faith, our belief, our trust in God and his promises. So let's remember the exhortation of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of sound mind. So brethren, that's our message for you tonight. Please turn in your songbooks to the song, or it will be presented shortly. 317. I pray that you've been exhorted today to continue to have confidence and to endure into the end and to rely upon the promises of God. Ken always makes a point, and I think he does so very effectively. Really, it's a plea at the end of each worship service to anyone here who's heard the gospel, whose heart has been pricked, to come to repent, to confess, and to be baptized in water. Brother, there's really no better time to do that than right now. This will enter you into the kingdom of God where you can obtain this great reward that we're to strive after, this hope, the reward of heaven. We're ready this morning to baptize you for the remission of your sins. But if there's also anyone here who needs the prayers of the saints or wishes to acknowledge sin, we stand now ready to pray for you, to help you, care for you, and to support you. We ask that you come now as we stand and sing.